0: Thank you. Great, okay, so um, obviously I think <coughs> that this is an important part of um, effective altruism, and again, what I'm going to do today is uh, go through rather quickly what I think the ethical core of this is, as I understand the, the purpose of this. We're going to be having a discussion in which um, I'm outlining some of the the key ethical questions and um, we're then going to have a discussion of uh, effectiveness uh, in relation to how you assess the effectiveness of particular charities. Um, So I'll get going on this. Um, (coughs) This is actually drawn on a a talk I gave in in France uh, a month or two ago at a conference that was celebrating the fact that this is the 40th anniversary of the publication of animal liberation. So that's what uh, that is about, um, various editions that have ap- appeared. Um, but I think in understanding animal ethics um, and why this is important, it's good to look at the background of attitudes that people have had to animals to see that this movement is really quite a radical movement. And that, I think, is helps us to avoid getting discouraged when we feel we haven't made as much progress as we would have liked to make, although we have certainly made progress. Um, but you need to understand, get some perspective to see how far reaching the changes that we're trying to make um, are. So, you know, some of the sort of key points of the dominant ethics, uh, some of them which are still quite influential. Um are actually uh you know things like this the uh, the verse in genesis uh about man's dominion um let uh, let him let let man have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the earth <coughs> and this has standardly been interpreted throughout the many centuries of of Christendom at least um as being um really giving us the right to do what we like with animals i'll show you a slide about that in a moment i'll come back to that um, but also, although Justin Oakley in the previous session was uh, very positive about Aristotle and uh, virtue ethics, people tend to take uh, a lot from Aristotle. Um, there is a darker side to Aristotle as well, unfortunately, um, and and part of it is is this idea of the universe being made as a hierarchy in which the less rational serve or exist for the sake of the more rational, and so. Uh, The beasts exist for the sake of man and, in fact, um, uh, another part of it uh, that, of course, Justin would also clearly reject, as everybody would today, is the idea that less rational humans exist for the sake of the more rational humans. And since the barbarians, which was a term the Greeks used to include anybody who wasn't Greek, basically, are less rational than the Greeks, this was a justification for the existence of slavery in Greek society. (coughs) We've gone beyond that but we haven't necessarily gone beyond this Aristotelian hierarchy. Okay, and here's now the, uh, the dominant Christian interpretation of the idea of man's dominion for um, really almost all the centuries of Christendom um, is this of Thomas Aquinas. He says, actually, it doesn't matter how we behave to animals because of this dominion verse, because of the permission God granted us to have dominion over animals. It just doesn't matter. And elsewhere he elaborates on this. So nothing that you do to animals is in itself a sin because of the effects on animals. So as far as the the suffering of the animals is concerned, you can torture them all you like. It's not a sin. The only reason why it's not good to torture animals is if you develop a cruel disposition to animals, you might then be cruel to humans. But obviously the implication of that as the justification for saying let's not be cruel to animals is still one that the animals, the suffering of the animals doesn't really matter in itself. Now, um, I was very, very pleased to read, some of you will have noticed, that uh, Pope Francis just uh, a month or two ago, was it, came out with an encyclical, Relating to the environment, uh, Laudato Si', which got a lot of media attention, mainly because um, it was very strong on climate change. Very clear that uh, uh, the Pope thinks that climate change is real, that it's human caused, and that we need to do pretty drastic things about it. And of course, that is very much to be welcomed. But what was got much less attention was the fact that it actually um, it actually rejects this interpretation of. Man's dominion, because he does talk about animals, um, and he's, he, he doesn't name Aquinas, but he says some have held the view that man's dominion means that we don't have any obligations to animals or that it doesn't matter what we do to animals. Uh, and Pope Francis says clearly that this is not correct. Um, so I thought that was, you know, an improvement, but it's, it's basically taken until now, 2000 years, uh, of, of Christianity for uh, someone in as important a position as a Pope to clearly uh, say that this is a misunderstanding of ethics. Um, so that's the sense in which uh, we we have come from something much worse than where we are now. Um, then there was Descartes. I won't go into this, but Descartes famously uh, denied that animals are conscious um, and so that meant you could do more or less anything with them. Um, Kant, at the end of the 18th century, wasn't really all that different in the end from Aquinas, um, That, uh, but the difference is that rather than quoting from Genesis, he says that animals are not self-conscious, but he still thinks they're an end to our means, sorry, they're a means to our ends, and um, and that is humans. And he also says the reason why you shouldn't be cruel to animals is because it may lead you to be cruel to humans. And the the change comes really with Jeremy Bentham, or at least most clearly, he's not the, certainly not the first to have better attitudes to animals. But uh, Bentham is very clear and in opposition to Kant that the point is that they can suffer. So suffering is elevated in the utilitarian tradition to the key point about th- that that gives a being moral status. It's not whether they can reason or can they talk. Certainly not for Bentham whether they have an immortal soul. Um, but can they suffer? And uh, Sorry, did I miss one? Um, Okay, and so then if we come to the view that um, has been dominant in the the past century and I guess still is very much uh, with us, it's better than the Aquinas or Kant view um, because although it says that we have a higher status than animals and although it says that animals are items of property, and although it rejects uh, comparisons between humans and animals in terms of, you know, moral status or are some animals more intelligent than some humans and so on, that kind of discussion is, is thought to be offensive, but it still does say this, that we have duties to be kind to animals and to avoid being cruel to them and that's for their sake. In other words, cruelty is, is a bad thing even if it didn't have any further consequences for humans. But it still has this important uh, caveat that uh, we don't have to give the same weight to their interests that we give to human interests, even where the interests are similar. And that's where um, I and other people who would broadly consider themselves part of the animal liberation or animal rights movement will differ from this mainstream view. So in animal liberation, I... uh, rejected speciesism i didn't invent the word i took it from richard Ryder, who was somebody i knew in oxford at the time when i was a graduate student um but uh um i guess i used it a little defined it a little more precisely and um helped to popularize it um so uh I define speciesism as a prejudice or attitude of bias towards the interests of members of one's own species and against those of members of other species. Um, So this is still, I think, where our society is at and where most people are at in that they think that something that affects human beings is necessarily more important than something that affects non-human animals. And this is the question that I think needs to be challenged at the fundamental philosophical level. Why should the fact that a being is a member of the species Homo sapien mean that their interests have greater weight than a being who is not a member of the species Homo sapien? And if you think back to the slide from Henry Sidgwick that I showed in my previous talk, um, again, you can say, from the point of view of the universe, the point of view of the universe is not the point of view of a member of the species Homo sapien, it's a point of view that's independent of that so the good of any one being is that can have a good is equal to the good of any other assuming as that caveat said that similar amounts of good can be realized in each case now that caveat is I think what we need to discuss whether that's true um, whether it's true you know how much good non-human animals can have um, but that similar amounts, similar interests can equally is, I think, what we ought to accept when we reject speciesism. So um, this is essentially this principle. I call the principle of equal consideration of interests. I think it's a basic moral principle, if you like, a basic form of equality that applies within humans as well as between humans and other sentient beings. Um, so uh, it requires essentially that uh, if a being can suffer, its suffering be counted equally with the like suffering. That's the key word insofar as rough comparisons can be made of any other being. So it's not saying that the suffering is always alike, but it's saying where you can make a rough comparison and say, well, as far as I can tell, these are similar amounts of suffering, then um, it should count equally. Now that leaves a number of questions unresolved, if you've followed me so far and agreed with the rejection of speciesism, um, it leaves uh, this question of painlessly killing animals unresolved, um, and including this so-called replaceability argument. Um, and that's a little bit related to the topic that uh, uh, Hillary uh, was talking about in the last session about population ethics and whether you take account of um, the, the the welfare of being who does not exist and might not exist in future. So, so the argument essentially here um, is the argument put by somebody who is raising animals to sell them for food, but let's say is raising them humanely, not in a factory farm, giving them good lives and then painlessly killing them. Now, that's pretty hard to do on a commercial basis, but let's just assume that that is the case. And this farmer can then say... Look, if I did not kill these animals, I could not make a living by raising them, and therefore I would have to abandon the farm, and therefore these animals would no longer exist, or future generations of these animals would not exist. Um, but since they have good lives, it's a good thing that they exist, not a bad thing. So therefore it must be justifiable for me to painlessly kill the animals so that this happy animal existence can continue year after year after year. That's the replaceability argument for justifying painless killing of animals. Of course, some people will say, look, you're killing this animal here and now which does exist and you can't defend that by pointing to a hypothetical animal which will exist if this animal is killed and its its carcass is then sold. um and that's a question that is actively under discussion among philosophers. There's a couple of books coming – well, one come out, came out on that a year or so ago called Killing Happy Animals by Tatjana Visak and uh, she and Robert Garner are editing a collection of essays on the same topic. So that's still under active consideration and I think is a genuinely open philosophical question in which there's arguments on both sides. Um this is somebody who's arguing that it's okay to kill animals, Roger Scruton, who's a British philosopher. Uh, I think in the interest of time I'll, I won't read the quote, but he's talking about differences between the interests that humans have in continuing to live and to achieve something in their lives and the interests that a cow might have where a cow doesn't have an interest in achieving something uh, in her life because... Um, she just doesn't think that way. One day is similar to the next, I guess, at least once she's mature. Um, so that's one argument to say that equal consideration of interest does not mean that it's equally serious to kill a cow and a normal human being. That's not speciesism still because it's referring—it's pointing to a difference. that is not just the fact that one being is a member of our species and another isn't. It's pointing to a difference in the cognitive capacities. And one of those implications is if you do have a human being who is so profoundly intellectually disabled that they are no more capable of having achievements in their life than a cow, then this argument doesn't apply to them either. In other words, the the wrongness of killing them has to be defended on some other grounds or else it's going to be no greater than the wrongness of killing the cow. Okay, then this is a question that I did briefly mention, I think, in the panel, um, earlier, and one which I hope we will be discussing, um, today, because this is an important question for trying to evaluate animal charities. How, what are the experiences of animals like? How do we weigh the pleasures and pains of different animals, both against each other, because we might have choices between animal charities that help one species of animal and animal charities that help other species of animals. So how do we weigh them against each other and how do we weigh them against those of normal humans? And for effective altruists, I think those are really key questions. Uh, Weighing them against normal humans is a key question as to whether animal suffering or one of the key questions as to whether reducing animal suffering ought to be one of the top causes that we should be involved in Um, and if the answer to that is yes, then why considering how different species suffer is also going to be important in deciding which, uh, animal causes we choose. Um, and then there's this third question, which is starting to come up increasingly in discussions online. Uh, should we try to reduce the suffering of wild animals? Um, and, uh, so there are a number of different issues here. One is, um, uh, one is things like, uh, predators and prey. You know, would it, I mean, that slide that, uh, it was David showed about, uh, uh Cecil, uh, the, the lion. Um, was it? I, no, who showed that? It was, yes, it was David. Right. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a great example of that. So, you know, do we think that maybe, uh, the world, a world without lions would be better? But then, of course, you have to say, well, does that mean that the, that antelope are going to overpopulate and graze out the the uh savannas there and um that then there's going to be a population crash and they're all going to starve. So complicated things can happen if you do interfere with that cycle. So that's one question as to whether you know we ought to be doing something about that. Um, And uh against that of course are those who are going to say that um there is intrinsic value in ecological systems. There are a number of environmental philosophers who think that uh, value does not consist only in conscious experiences uh, in the way that utilitarians typically, hedonists think, but it also consists in ecological systems, in biodiversity. Um, and one of the things that worries me about taking up this issue is precisely the idea that it is going to pit uh, the animal movement against the environmental movement, the conservation movement. Um, and both of those movements, I think, are fighting uh, an uphill battle in order to get better protection for animals, in order to get better attention for the environment. Um, and so I think it would be a, a, a diversion of resources if, if that were to happen. Now, some people might say, well, you know, the environmental movement wants to conserve more wild nature, and it's not just the occasional killing of a an antelope by a lion, but the whole of wild animal existence has more misery, more suffering than pleasure. Um, that's an argument that people like uh, Brian Tomasek, uh, Oscar Horta have uh, have put. Um, if you think that, it does rather change the calculations a little bit. But um, I'm, I'm uh, not sure that that's right um, and in any case I really don't think the public is ready to have uh, even contemplate that sort of discussion. So to me that's you know, again, a, a bit of a distraction from the things that we can effectively work on. Um, okay, well, I think maybe since I've more or less run out of time, um, I won't go into this uh, particular thing, but I do think that the movement has made, despite where we've come from, we've made significant progress in a number of areas, both in terms of our attitudes to um, animals But also in terms of some reforms, not particularly in this country, unfortunately, we have had improvements here for treatment of animals uh, undergoing research. But um, uh, across the entire European Union uh, and now in some states of the US, including most importantly California, we have had changes in laws which make the very worst forms of factory farm confinement illegal. That is, the, the worst kinds of crowding of hens in battery cages confinement of sows and veal calves so they can't even turn around have been made illegal. Um, that's, you know, a small step but it's a step that is actually affecting hundreds of millions of animals around the world and giving them somewhat better lives, uh, even if their lives are not acceptable. So uh, in terms of thinking as effective altruists should, can I make a difference here? I think the answer is yes. The movement has already made a significant difference and I believe that it can make more progress Uh, will make more progress in the coming decades but, of course, needs more support. So that's why I do think it is an important uh, effective altruist cause. Okay, I must be about out of time, so I'll stop at that point. Thank you.